Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human, and we have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on the show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. named Daryl Cooper, who laid out what he believes to be the thought processes of American conservatives leading up to the riots at the U.S. Capitol. The thread caught the attention of many conservative commentators and spread like wildfire. We've been on quite a journey working through the mashup of asserted facts and emotional appeals and trying to tease out where Cooper has actual sources and where he's giving a persuasive summary of his interpretation of events. And we've discovered that like many others who make their hay with this sort of dramatic retelling of events, he didn't place much importance on communicating truly verifiable facts. He's relying on the trust of the reader to accept it when he says, we know this to be factual. And honestly, uh, we could probably have stopped this series after the last episode when it became pretty clear that things were likely not going to get any clearer as we moved through the thread. But at this point, we're kind of just operating on principle. Yeah, our, our goal here is not to ridicule anyone or to belittle their feelings and probably very real frustrations. In this thread, Cooper talks at length about how conservatives, he specifically calls out boomer tier Trumpers, were feeling at different points throughout his narrative. And in fact, if this was just a thread about how people feel, we wouldn't really have much to say it's pretty obvious that average Joe conservatives are feeling scared and confused and distrustful. But once Cooper started listing confirmed facts behind those perspectives, he attempted to legitimize those feelings as being based in reality, as being the logical response to these events. And like we've said so many times before, we believe that everyone has a right to their opinion but we believe that everyone has a responsibility to understand the information that influences their opinion. And if well-meaning Americans who genuinely want what they believe to be the best for this country, which I don't doubt at all, are basing their opinions and potentially violent or radical actions on this information, then they deserve to know whether or not it's true. Exactly. We really want to take the time to demonstrate that this kind of rhetoric is dangerous. It is divisive and manipulative. 
It takes advantage of the real fear, the real discomfort and anxiety that people feel about the world around them and uses it to reinforce the idea that others just like them are their enemies. And that's kind of what we've seen being said is, is throughout this thread and, and this, the conversations we've had uh, with the people who presented this thread, um, the feeling is the most important part of this. And, you know, what they're saying is we see these storylines and that makes me feel like there's something suspicious going on. Mm -hmm. There's something not right in America. And I can totally understand why they would feel that way if they believe the things that are presented in this thread as fact as actually being fact. Um, and we talked about it a little bit last week. Sometimes you hear something that immediately confirms or validates something that you believe. Mm -hmm. And you like, yes, and you want to believe it. And you don't question that, quote, fact. And so totally understand that. If you find yourself believing in this thread that, that Cooper had put forward, and I'm, I'm actually really unclear if Cooper himself believed these things or if this is just what he discovered through his conversations with people who believe yeah. these things. Um, it's just not crystal. But regardless, um, if, if you find yourself like leaning into this and being like, yes, I, I think this is right. I think he's got it right. Um, first of all, know that we totally are happy to have you here. We don't want you thinking that we're attacking you. It is hard to not uh, just fall into what he's saying and taking it as fact because he presents everything so confidently. Mm -hmm. um, we hope that you'll listen to the, the points that we're going to make throughout this next hour and, um, you know, consider where your thoughts lie after that point. Um, if you give us this time and, and then consider it thoughtfully, you know, that's all we can ask. So it's time for somebody to tell a joke so we can get the mood a little bit lighter before we move <laughs> on. But I don't, I don't really have any right now. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to work that in when we're working on heavy subjects, like throw in some dad jokes or something. I don't know yeah, if you got okay. a favorite dad joke, send it to us. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. So I'm actually really excited to start this episode with this particular set of claims. It's a really short segment in the thread, but it gives us an opportunity to tell a pretty interesting story about the kind of teamwork and cooperation that you literally never see in a group project, let alone one that spans industries and ideologies. We're talking big time, in the shadows, cabal-like coordination, unseen forces working together to maximize their influence. The kind of thing we love to tell people is as rare as a chupacabra sighting. All right, are you intrigued yet? Maybe you're just a little confused. Here's what Cooper claims to be true. He says, Time Mag told us during the 2020 riots, there were weekly conference calls involving, among others, leaders of the protests, the local officials who refused to stop them, and the media who framed them for political effect. In Ukraine, we call that a color revolution. According to Time magazine, mass riots were planned in cities across the country if Trump won. Sure, they were protests, but they were planned by the same people as during the summer, and everyone knows what that would have meant. It's not often that a claim like this really sets us up with these nice and tidy sources to pull from. 
Um, citing your sources goes a long, long way towards establishing the credibility of your ideas. And it likely helped readers in their <laughs> trust on his comments, if, if they needed it. Um, so, of course, we headed straight over to Time Magazine. We went straight to the search bar and popped in some combination of keywords that included protesters, media, weekly, and conference call. And the top result we got didn't seem to fit. Uh, it was an article from February 2021 called The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. Right. So we kind of furrowed our brow a little bit and thought... Maybe we just happened to find the right combination of keywords to grab this random article. So we started browsing through the rest of the search results, but there was nothing. And I literally mean nothing that seemed to make sense with Cooper's note, right? Like it should be pretty clear. We were looking for a Time Magazine article. We'll check. We were on time, right? And it needed to talk about the 2020 riots, which to most conservatives means the protests that arose in cities like Minneapolis and Atlanta and Louisville and Portland in the aftermath of a summer of revelation of violence against black Americans by law enforcement officers. Um, and then we were looking for an article that indicated that there was some level of cooperation between the leaders of the protests, the local officials in the areas where the protests were common, and then media outlets, also presumably in those areas, but Possibly national. Who knows? But there, was, there wasn't a single article that met those criteria based on the title and the first few paragraphs. I mean, time isn't exactly known for burying the lead. It's not the Atlantic. Uh, they do a pretty good job of hooking you in with the thing you came for. Still, we spent more than an hour looking for and through any article that might possibly be more of a candidate than the one we found. And then we went to another version of the rant, a, a Substack article where you can read Cooper's whole manifesto on one page, and sure enough, he had linked to the original article as his evidence. So that's where we're going to go to use this to break down these set of claims. And like we said a few minutes ago, it's, it's really a cool story. Now, since this isn't a straightforward apples to apples comparison, you're going to have to bear with us as we pull out uh, the relevant chunks from this article. Uh, but at the end of this section, we'll give you the bullet points of yes and no, and we'll explain what the heck a color revolution is as a bonus. So Cooper starts with this idea that during the protest that swept the nation in the spring and summer of 2020, there was some collaborative effort being put forth by the organizers of these movements, the local officials and the media outlets to allow the protests to happen unchecked and then to frame them for political leverage. Though, like many conservatives, Cooper uses the term riots to describe these protests. This is actually a really interesting example of how the words that we use to describe something shape others' expectations of it. A riot in its textbook definition is a violent disturbance of the peace by a crowd a violent public disorder, a tumultuous disturbance of the public peace. A protest, on the other hand, is a solemn declaration of opinion and dissent, the act of objecting or a gesture of disapproval, a complaint, objection, or display of unwillingness to an idea or course of action. 
Now, those are pretty distinct pictures. They assign very different motivations and behaviors to the actors that they describe. And depending on which news source you turn to, you likely experienced last summer's demonstrations in one of those two ways. But which were they really? Riots or protests? A report released earlier this year by an organization called ACLED, which collects information on political violence and protest events across the world, extensively analyzed data from the protests that took place in the wake of George Floyd's death and in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Note, not the organization. They are different. Yeah. The movement and the organization are different things. So here's what they found. More than 11,000 demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement were reported in 3,000 distinct locations. 94% of those protests were peaceful. Only 6% involved reports of violence, vandalism, looting, or clashes with police. In contrast, demonstrations involving right-wing militias or militant social movements have turned destructive or violent 14% of the time. When right-wing groups engage with pro-Black Lives Matter demonstrators, the risk of violence increases. <clears throat> About 26% of those demonstrations where the groups clash turned violent. Police were more likely to intervene in these demonstrations. They, received, they intervened 52% of the time compared to 26% with demonstrators for other causes, just generally. And they are more likely to use force against pro-Black Lives Matter demonstrators. Authorities used force 37% of the time against peaceful pro-BLM protesters uh, compared to less than 20% of the time against other peaceful protesters. Right out of the gate, Cooper characterizes the protest that he's referring to as violent, as tumultuous, and a threat to public peace. When in actuality, they were largely peaceful, and the violence perpetrated during those protests was perpetrated against the protesters. This mischaracterization sets the reader up for outrage when they hear that the leaders behind these riots were working in cooperation with local officials who refused to stop them, and journalists who took advantage to make a political point. But that's not what happened either. <laughs> According to the article, Cooper claims as his evidence, he cites it himself. But what did happen was an incredible and coordinated effort by leaders in nearly every field on both sides of the political spectrum to mobilize voters, to combat, to combat misinformation, and to prepare for the chance that Trump would refuse to leave office. So, breaking it down, were there weekly conference calls? Yes! They were initiated by a man named Mike Podhorger, who is best known for using data analysis and hashtag science to help people run political campaigns. And as the 2020 election cycle heated up and Podhorger began watching the data more closely, he became more and more concerned about the potentiality that the president himself was trying to disrupt the election. Not wanting to sound, well, crazy, he floated that idea to a small circle of allies before he introduced it in his weekly email newsletter. But once he did that, others came out of the woodwork who shared the same concern. And it turns out that others had been thinking about and planning for the possibility of a contested election or even an outright refusal to concede. 
And in that concern, he saw the opportunity to collaborate with others to do the work that he, that they believed to be necessary to reinforce the functions of our democracy. So on March 3rd, 2020, uh, Pote drafted a three-page confidential memo that read, Trump has made it clear that this will not be a fair election and that he will reject anything but his own re-election as fake and rigged. He noted that should Trump lose, he would use the, quote, right-wing information system to establish his narrative and incite his supporters to protest. The memo laid out four categories of challenges that he believed the Trump campaign would present to a fair election. Attacks on voters, attacks on election administration, attacks on his political opponents, and, quote, efforts to reverse the results of the election. Now, this was March 3rd, 2020. <laughs> All right. This was uh, eight months before November, before the actual ballots were cast, that he's predicting this and calling out the playbook. I think most of us can point to specific examples of each of those four attacks that we saw carried out by the Trump campaign in the run-up to the election in November and after the election. Yeah, actually. So something else happened in March of 2020, too. So you might remember this. Um, everybody got sick and the world shut down. Yeah. So right in the peak of the primary season, the election system was thrown into chaos. Uh, normal methods of voting became unsafe for both voters and poll workers, and states struggled to change vote-by-mail procedures in time for primaries or to get absentee votes counted. Uh, worker shortages drastically reduced available polling locations. It became very clear that there was serious potential for the election process to meet disaster in November. So it was time to get to work. In April, Podorger began posting a weekly Zoom call in which his connections from all across the progressive universe shared five-minute presentations on everything from advertising results to legal strategies. There were representatives of the labor movement, Planned Parenthood, Greenpeace, Indivisible, MoveOn.org. There were data heads and strategists, representatives of political donors and foundations, and yeah, there were grassroots organizers and racial justice act activists, too. The call was invitation only, but the audience soon reached into the hundreds. The group became a constellation of operatives across the left that shared overlapping goals but rarely ever worked together. And as the year progressed, the alliance stretched to Congress and Silicon Valley and the state government. Eventually, it reached Republicans who were also concerned about Trump's behaviors. As the election neared, even representatives of the National Association of Evangelicals and the National African American Clergy Network signed on to a statement re released as a result of this coordination. The article goes on to outline the many different ways that this coalition worked to support the November election, from securing money to buying sanitizing supplies for local precincts to running a full-scale PR campaign that explained the rapidly changing election process, to educating media outlets on how to interpret election night data and prepare for a red swell as votes rolled in. And portions of the group also planned and prepared for widespread protests if, for any reason, 
there was interference in the election or vote counting afterward. Cooper says that the, quote, same people who planned the summer protests were planning, quote, mass riots if Trump won. And sure, some of those organizers were part of the plan, but so were representatives from more than 150 liberal organizations like the Sierra Club and the Women's March. That coalition was called Protect the Results, and they set up a nationwide mobilization network that was ready to take to the streets in protest at the push of a button if, and only if, Trump supporters attempted to stage a coup or interfere with the election. And if those protests were anything like the ones that took place during the summer, well, we've already established that they'd be uh, far from riots. Exactly. And we all know what that means. We all know what that means. Well, I mean, now we do, right? Yeah. Mm. Okay, so because we promised you bullet points, here is a true-false breakdown. Claim number one. Time Magazine reported on the things he asserts as fact. Mostly false. There is a Time article, and Cooper did use it as a reference, but it doesn't say the things that he implied in this section of the tweet. The Number two. The actions in question took place, quote, during the 2020 riots. Very mischaracterized. The article takes place throughout the spring, summer, and fall of 2020, during which more than 11,000 protests took place, 10,560 of which were peaceful. That is also the end of the four-year election cycle and the most active time for all relevant political activity. Yeah, they just overlapped. So you could yeah. say during the 2020 riots, but you could also say like during allergy season. Yeah, during the coronavirus pandemic, it just they overlapped. Yeah, they were not what uh, <laughs> it's correlation, correlation not, causation. not causation. Yep. Yeah. OK, these cooperative behaviors that Cooper was talking about included weekly conference calls. Hey, that one's true. All right. All right. Here's a bigger one. Those conference calls included, among others, leaders of the protests, the local officials who refused to stop them, and media people who framed them for political effect. This one, this one is also mostly false and very mischaracterized. There were protests organizers on the calls, and there were some local officials, but there's no indication that their locations overlapped or that controlling the protests was discussed. There may have been some media members on the call, but they're not mentioned outright. The primary reference to the media is in the context of PR campaigns and data analysis education, as in the organization was educating the media, not yeah. the media was trying to plan how they were going to present things. Right. You see the, the very, like, very distinct difference in those two yeah. stories. Yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. That's. That's the best way to put it. Okay, next part. According to Time Magazine, mass riots were planned. I'm just going to cut it off right there. Mass riots were planned. That's biased, but true at heart. There was an extensive network of protests that was organized and ready to deploy. But calling it riots is, like we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes, 
heavily biased language. It's leading language may, meant to make you feel something, which uh, we've yeah. talked about how that's a I lot of it us. makes me feel something, but it's not what uh. you want. <laughs> Next one. In cities across the country, this was this this all happened in cities across the country. Well, yes, there were more than 400 locations. True. Yeah. And to wrap up that statement, these mass riots were planned in cities across the country. If Trump won... Well, that one is just completely false. Buzzer, please. These people were ready to protest in the event of a coup or direct election interference. And they never actually did. Yeah. So then that leads us to the like, I don't know how else to word it. It's kind of like a a hedging of it. Like, sure, they were protests, all right, but they were Mm -hmm. planned by the same people as during the summer. This is partially true. As we said, some of the organizers from racial justice and black advocacy groups were a part of the Protect the Results Coalition. But so were members of more than 150 organizations. It was hardly exclusive to these, these protest leaders. Right. And now that kind of emotional subtext that really is just meant to suck you in and remind you that we're on a journey here together. Cooper says, and now and everyone knows what that would have meant. Well, now we do know what that would have meant. Admittedly, this one makes me really angry. This part of this whole thread makes me so mad. And I'm probably having a really petty and pedantic response to this. But now that we have data on hand, it's very clear that if those protests had been organized by the same groups, and if they had actually taken place at all, there is a 96% chance that they would have been peaceful. And not for nothing, uh, we did have a riot. Yeah. It happened on January 6th. Huh. We know who was in that riot. Yeah. We know who got that one together. And we know that it was so. sure as hell not peaceful. And that's what irks me about a lot of a lot of the claims about what one side or the other is doing. Most of the time, I'll, I'll say it does come from, say, Fox saying that the left is doing this thing. Right. And it almost always comes off as projection because mm-hmm. later on we find out or it happens or it occurs that, no, this is something that the the right wing extremist people, not normal everyday citizens that are invested but like the people who are willing to take up arms on flimsy uh, (laughs) evidence um they did get together they did go and they stormed the capital and they did try to enact a coup we know which side did that yeah i don't think it's biased to say that we watched it happen on live television Stop projecting, all right? Don't do it. It's not healthy. (sighs) Okay, sorry. We're off. Oh, one more thing. One more thing. Um, This particular part of the thread tries to make it seem conspiratorial that uh, protest leaders or uh, people organizing a demonstration would be in contact with city officials, with leaders, with the media. Oh, yeah. Um, Good point. That's normal. Mm-hmm. And not only is it normal, it is legally required yeah. in many places. Like a protest has to tell 
local officials, we're going to have a demonstration, we're going to have a protest at this time, we expect X number of people, um, it's going to happen at this location, we don't expect there to be any hullabaloo, or we do, Right. And it, I know in D.C., when I was caught there, it even got down to the point of like, did did they expect there to be banners and signs and poles so we would know what sort of materials were going to be on site in case it did get out of hands and those things were turned into weapons? Why would we ever want to know such things? Because it's such a far-fetched thing that could happen, right? It would yeah, never, never, ever, ever, ever happen. So yeah, that's normal. Um, I will, in Cooper's defense, and in the defense of the people who read this Time article and had it confirmed their deepest fears, the article's written pretty tongue-in-cheek, and there's a lot of language that makes it yeah. sound conspiratorial, and like it was this shadowy thing, like it's in the title itself. It was written to make it sound like a conspiracy, and that personally irked me quite a bit. I think it was irresponsible of time to publish it in that sort of language, in that sort of tone, because there are so many people who were looking for proof that there was a massive conspiracy going on. And this, if you are not willing to accept the the sarcasm that yeah. is inherent in the wording in the article, and you take it at face value, of course it's going to confirm what you're worried about. So I think that right. was that was irresponsible. Um, they definitely counted but, on their audience to be the subtext type. Yeah, I, I think it was a misstep. Uh, when when talk, when talking about nuanced and complicated topics, subtext is not your friend. Right, it should, should all be supertext in, in bold and underlined if possible. Italics, please. Um, yeah. Okay. So we we have <laughs> we have gone on to a different path. Um, <laughs> We were going to talk about, we are going to talk about what a color revolution yeah, was, yeah, yeah. why it's referenced in this part, and why in the world Cooper says, in Ukraine, we? I don't know. <laughs> we'll yeah. get into it, I guess. I, so this, but first, what is a color revolution? Yeah, this caught my attention. I was reading through the tweet, and I was like, okay, 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 blah, blah, blah. Wait, what the hell is a color revolution? So, the Google, which is what we do around here tells us well, okay hold on <laughs> time out time out because i want to make something clear here okay we do not just go to google no. and search for this stuff okay google is a google highly is effective tool for people who know how to resource research and validate their sources yeah and there's a difference by the way between what we do and we call it research and actual research which we don't actually do. We, we call it research because it's good shorthand. But what we do is find sources, vet sources, and then use the information contained in those sources. And we go to a variety of locations. Google, we go to EBSCOhost, yeah. we go to LexisNexis, we go to um, Gale Academic Library, we go to our literal local library. I've used hard, like, physical books in this before. <laughs> Same. Hold on. This is like... Ugh. Specifically for this show, purchased for yes, this for this podcast. Awesome. Yeah, and um, some of our first episodes, um, I think on our social, we we shared like photos of actual books printed in eighteen eighty something or other, like 
we use a whole variety of sources, but um, if you know how to use it, Google's a great way to get to some yep. of those reputable sources very quickly. Right. And we will cover at some point how to do that sort of vetting and that source uh, thing. But just, I just, <laughs> we joke a lot about using Google and screwing up our algorithm. I just want to make it extra right. super duper clear that that is not exactly what we are doing. I mean, we're probably just, screwing up our algorithm, okay. let's be honest, but. No, no, we are doing that for sure. I spent a lot of time on New York Post. We'll get to that later, but uh, yeah, yeah, just for the record. Right. Okay. Sorry. It's good. It's sorry. Good. What is a color revolution? Okay. A color revolution was the term used to describe a series of peaceful street protests that toppled corrupt and undemocratic regimes in Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan from late 2003 through mid 2005 and ushered in the election of new presidents in all three nations. They were hailed by many Western countries as democratic breakthroughs that might thoroughly reshape the political terrain of the former Soviet Union. And though they didn't have the long-term effects that many hoped that they would, they've served as an example for other similar events in other places of the world. But why would Cooper describe what happened in that article here in the United States as a color revolution? Now, it would make sense to assume he's talking about the racial justice protests here. This only, however, makes sense if you're reading the election-focused article we just talked about and focusing on the election part of it. But when you compare the characteristics of one of these color revolutions to the 2020 election and what happened in that article, Cooper seems to be making some pretty bold statements about the nature of Trump's administration and what was necessary to make change in the Oval Office. Okay, let's look at these characteristics. And again, these are like high level, super basic, like top line text. There's so much that goes into these kinds of political situations that we're just going with like the bullet point list that the researchers give us on what makes a color revolution. And the first characteristic is a semi-autocratic rather than fully autocratic regime in power. Well, I mean, I feel like we can give this one a check mark. An autocratic leader takes a my way or the highway approach to governance, which we definitely saw in Trump's administration. But because of the nature of the U.S. government, he could really never be a complete autocrat. Right. The next thing that a color revolution needs is a unpopular incumbent. Well, check, right? Trump was popular with many, but also very unpopular with others and unpopular with more people than he was popular with. Right. So on balance, an unpopular incumbent. According to scholars, the third thing that you need is a united and organized opposition. Yep. This article makes it very clear that those opposed to Trump's re-election were able to come together in a united and organized way. Even the Republicans. Number four an ability to quickly drive home the point that voting results were falsified. Okay. This is where it gets a little stickier and the comparison gets less direct. In the color revolutions in Eastern Europe, one of the ways that autocratic rulers held on to their power was to falsify the election. Basically, they stole it. And for a long time, there was little way to prove that with any expediency. 
In the case of the 2020 election, the issue wasn't that Trump was going to falsify votes to steal the election. It was that he was going to try to convince everyone that the election had already been stolen. So in our case, this would have been an ability to drive home the point that Trump's claims about the election were false. The fifth thing that you need is enough independent media to inform citizens about the falsified vote. Oh, well, we definitely have enough independent media. And by independent, we mean media that is not controlled directly by the government, which in many countries in the world, a lot of the media outlets are. Hmm. Um, and they did the job of informing people that the claims of a stolen election were unfounded. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty of those claims here. We're just demonstrating how this process aligns with a color revolution per Cooper's claims here. Number six, a political opposition capable of mobilizing tens of thousands or more demonstrators to protest electoral fraud. Check, check, and check. Prote <laughs> protect the results had thousands of people ready to, and willing to take to the streets. And the last thing that you need is divisions among the regime's coercive forces. This one's interesting. And I think it's a key factor to how well this coordinated effort actually worked. No one can say whether or not this group would have been as successful if they hadn't had cooperation from inside the Republican Party. But I think it's fair to hypothesize the divisions inside the party contributed to Trump's loss. Okay, so interestingly enough, it looks like Cooper hit this nail right on the head. Now, we're not saying that the United States experienced anything like what these former Soviet countries experienced, or that this article is proof of any sort of actual political revolution. Not at all. Uh, but we are saying that it's interesting how closely what happened aligns with what researchers say about the basics of a color revolution. There's a lot more nuance that goes so into it. So much nuance. We're not saying that what happened here met that, right? We are, however, giving Cooper some credit for getting one kind of right, though we still can't figure out why he spoke about Ukraine in a collective way. Like, is he Ukrainian? Right. Like, did he spend time in the Ukraine? Did he work there? Or is he saying it more in a sort of like um, sarcastic, like, that's what we call fraud. Right. Right. Which would be different. Um, yeah. We just don't know. If he is Ukrainian, that does raise some questions about <laughs> the, the motivation behind this, uh, this article. That was my or first this, thought. This um, rant, or or right? if he is someone who spent a significant amount of time living and working there, it could explain the heavy emphasis in this thread on uh, so much of the conversation around Ukraine. If he has um, kind of that specific perspective on the situation. But we don't know. I even dug through Reddit. I went into a Reddit rabbit hole trying to figure this out and i couldn't so if anybody maybe one knows, of you yeah if you do again as always there goes my chapstick we are willing and 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 more than excited to 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 put it to bed and figure out what exactly the case is there um until that point your guess is as good as ours yeah maybe we should 23 and me him somebody get a dna swab <laughs> quick um, chase him down swab his cheek Let's go. No, don't do that. Please don't. don't. Do Please don't, don't ever do that. No. Do that. Yeah. Uh, we, we here at Fireside LLC 
not our company, um, do <laughs> not recommend violating people's bodily autonomy in any way. No, especially <laughs> not to obtain a swab for 23andMe, which I can verify. You actually have to spit a lot into a tube to do. Don't do that. Awesome. Don't do it. No plan on it. Okay. I think it's, I think yep. it's time to move on. I think we can move on, okay. please. <laughs> <laughs> the next big chunk of claims that we're going to talk about this time revolves around big tech and their alleged aiding of the Biden campaign. Cooper says that big tech ran a full-on censorship campaign against a major newspaper to protect a political candidate. All of the tech companies now admit it was a mistake, he says, and this is made all the more offensive because of emails describing direct corruption and backed up by the CEO of the company they were using. And the fact that stories about Trump being pissed on by Russian prostitutes and blackmailed by Putin were, I'm just laughing because you made me read this, were promoted as fact. And the only evidence was a document paid for by his opposition and disavowed by its source. We're going way back to episode one of this. Um, Mm -hmm. So despite this, it was the New York Post, which was banned for reporting true information. Lord I only made Jesus, you read it that's a roller coaster. Yeah, I spent hours <laughs> reading about Trump's sexual proclivities in order to do this. And I really, 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 really do not want to ever do that again. Yeah, anymore. I do not envy you that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's address this. This particular claim, like we said, it goes back to what we discussed uh, last week with the Ukraine scandal, uh, I think it's fair to say that what is happening in this part of the claim is the natural evolution of that particular conspiracy. When the claims around the Biden's activity came out and basically fizzled in the larger American audience, uh, the conspiracy itself kind of mutated. Now, this could have been totally innocent, like it mutated because uh people were actually trying to explain something that they didn't understand or it could have been intentional and manufactured mutations regardless 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 <laughs> it did change a little bit so now we're trying to explain why this this earth-shattering story about um Burisma and the uh, prosecutor general in Ukraine why that didn't cause more controversy than it did. And this is how we got to the story of Hunter Biden's laptop. Oh, yes. If you are blessedly out of the loop on this one, allow us to sum up. In October 2020, the New York Post published articles that they claimed contained emails which showed that Hunter Biden provided an opportunity to Vadim Pozharsky at that maybe... Maybe. As good as good as I good as I can do. Pozharsky. 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 Maybe, because it's KYI. Yeah. The end. Again, if you know, let us know. Yes. We do actually make a very concerted effort to get people's names correct on this show. We do. Um so sometimes we joke about how terribly we do, but that is mostly self deprecation because we do actually work so hard to try to get them right. Um yeah. So this, this uh, Vadim Pozharsky was an advisor to the board of Burisma, and the opportunity was to meet then-Vice President Joe Biden. 
These emails were provided by Rudy Giuliani after they were allegedly found on a MacBook Pro left at a Delaware computer repair shop owned by John Paul McIsaac. You'll remember from last week that Giuliani is Trump's on-again, off-again lawyer. McIsaac reached out to Giuliani, who, along with Steve Bannon, informed the New York Post of the laptop. Steve Bannon, you may or may not remember, is a far-right political strategist, former executive chairman of far-right news organization Breitbart News, and federally indicted and then presidentially pardoned fraudster. Just an interesting side note, go back and listen to our episode on presidential pardons and what that means for Bannon's guilt in this situation. Spoiler, you can't be pardoned for something you aren't guilty of. So, again, digressions, apologies, but we're absolutely not fanons of... But fanons, we're not fanons. I just <laughs> coined a popular Twitter term. We're not fanons. Awesome, we're not fanons. Nope, we are not fans of Bannon around here. Anyway, <laughs> Bannon and Giuliani then delivered an alleged copy of the laptop hard drive to the New York Post. The reason they delivered it to the New York Post is either damning evidence if you're a Trump supporter or a point in favor of media standards if you're anyone else. <laughs> Why? Uh, well, the sim simple fact of the matter is nobody else would take the story. Giuliani later said he had given the copy to the New York Post because, quote, either nobody else would take it or if they took it, they would spend all the time they could to try to contradict it before they put it out. Now, I can understand how that might seem like a media conspiracy. You know, quote, only the New York Post was brave enough to stand up for the truth. Everyone else was in on it kind of idea. And that sort of rebel story is the heartbeat of American individualism. But one... Proving or disproving a story before you publish it is like rule number one of journalism. You don't just believe anything on credit. And two, let's take a look at the context in which this information came. It's in October, but before the New York Post report, a White House lawyer and two others affiliated with Trump had already pitched a story about Hunter Biden's business dealings in China to the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal was conducting due diligence on this reporting when Giuliani went to several other outlets, including Fox News, all of which declined to publish it due to concerns over its reliability. The New York Post, however, went ahead and published a version of the story with unclear provenance. So it's not like a group of ideologically aligned media outlets denied this story as a coordinated unit. Several outlets refused to print this story, including the Wall Street Journal and Fox News. And just to make it clear, Rupert Murdoch owns the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and the New York Post. <laughs> okay? So two out of the guy's three printing companies said no. And the New York Post is the one who took it up. Now, I don't know if you know the history of the New York Post. It's actually really, really cool. It was started by Hamilton way back in the day, and it has a pretty credible argument to be uh, to claim the title of like the the nation's oldest uh, daily publication, news yeah. publication. 
Um, there's some back and forth on that, but I'll, right. I'm, I'm willing to give it to him. Um, but it's been through some stuff yeah. since that point in time and um, including uh, ownership battles and transferring you know, hands and who does what with it. A long, long story short, Murdoch is the one who bought it and then sold it and then rebought it to keep it from going into uh, bankruptcy and shutting down. And ever since then, it's kind of been, and by kind of, I mean, it has actually been pushed into this sort of tabloid yeah. uh, area of, of publishing. It has a lot of very explosive um, headlines. Uh, they are modeled after uh, newspaper, news tabloids really in the UK. Like that's specifically what they're modeling themselves after. Um, long story short, their standards have dropped since the time that they were, <laughs> they were published. So it kind of makes sense for the New York Post out of the three organizations to be the one to to take up this publication, unfortunately. Yeah. And it, um, it also makes sense if you have that more historical perspective on the post for some people to have um, kind of like a, a more ingrained trust of that publication that does not reflect its current state of operation. Yeah. Since we're being apathetic. Um, ooh. Ooh. Apathetic. Yeah. I like it. That said, it's still the uh, fourth most popular published news source in the United States hmm. every day by reader count, I think. So anyway, according to the New York Post story, some heretofore unknown person left the computer at McIsaac's repair shop to repair water damage. Then they disappeared. Hmm. Nobody returned to pick up the laptop and the shop couldn't find the owner. To make things more difficult, validating whether or not these emails were legitimate is just very difficult by itself. Uh, Thomas Ridd, a political scientist and disinformation expert at Johns Hopkins University, noted that the emails could have been forged or that forged material could have been mixed in with genuine materials, which is a common feature of disinformation operations. Originally, the New York Post only published images and PDF copies of the alleged emails. And images and PDF copies, they don't contain critical metadata that can be used to verify whether or not the emails themselves are real. Later, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, which again is a Murdoch-owned operation, uh, did observe the PDF's metadata, metadata and showed that the emails had been created in the fall of 2019, which is quite a feat for emails supposedly from 2014 and 2015. Even further, there were such issues within the New York Post itself that their own writers wouldn't put their names on the article. The reporter who allegedly authored the majority of it wouldn't allow his byline to be added to the report, due to concerns with the article's credibility. Multiple New York Post staff members questioned whether or not enough verification had been done to judge the authenticity of the hard drive contents. Eventually, the article was published with two bylines, one Emma Jo Morris and the other Gabrielle Von Rouge. Morris had never had a bylined article in the Post before that article, which is not surprising, considering that she had only worked at the New York Post since April of that year, 
and had come in after working as an associate producer on Sean Hannity's show. Von Rouge didn't even know that she was included in the byline until after it was published. Byline, by the way, I actually didn't really know what it was until I was researching this. Oh. It's the authors. It's yes. the, literally, this article is by. It's the line that tells you who the article is by. So it's right. byline. And just as some so. context, the way that a lot of things work within a newspaper organization is very rarely is an article written by one person. There's an entire team of people who work on an article, especially one that would require a lot of validation, a lot of verification, and a lot of research like this one. Um, so you may have a, a writer, a journalist at a paper who um, is well known, highly credible, and they'll be included on the byline. They may write even as little as 25% of the actual article, but they'll get the byline because they have the credibility in the industry. And then sometimes, depending on the newspaper um, or the website, they'll give you information on who else contributed to the article. Um, I think it is the Washington Post that does a really good job of telling you who contributed at the end. Um, but yeah, within journalism, the byline is like, if you get the byline, you get the credit. That's what writers fight for in these situations. So the idea that somebody would be given a byline without actually knowing it is um, kind of ridiculous in the way that journalism works. Yeah. Normally you're fighting for that byline. Yeah. Big deal that nobody that this person didn't know that they were on it yes and a big deal that that this was um miss morris's very first byline at the post this should normally go to one of their most credible reporters um but clearly it didn't yeah so anyway we lay all this out not because uh we're not fact checking necessarily that part of it uh we want to make it crystal clear what this article was and where it came from uh, two known Trump political operatives appeared with a laptop that they alleged belonged to Hunter Biden, discovered in a random computer shop in Delaware, which I think is, now is as good a time as any to note that Hunter Biden lives in California <laughs> and has since 2018, uh, according to the New York Post itself. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> like, they wrote an article in 2018 lambasting Hunter Biden for having an expensive house out there. Right. So it, he could have been there before that. And no, it's not absurd that he would be in Delaware, which is where his father lives. It's just, I wouldn't visit my parents and then take my computer to the, to the shop by my parents to get it repaired. That right. doesn't make sense. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. And I, we don't want to conflate what we feel to be understandable and logical with the actual truth here right i'm just saying this is a gap and a question that i personally have and that should be considered that's it so anyway that doesn't prove anything you just find it weird back on track um these two well-identified known partisan actors show up with an incredibly damning story that just so happened to materialize from an unknown unidentifiable source in the midst of an incredibly contentious presidential campaign and plays on previous conspiracy uh tropes no media organization would touch the story including fox because they didn't trust the information the one organization that did take the story is a known tabloid whose own writers wouldn't put their names on the story out of concerns for credibility. The two people that did end up on the byline either didn't have any other writing with the New York Post or didn't even know they were being listed. 
Yeah. And it's just it just red flag after red flag. So many red flags. So many red flags. And then and then the story blows up on social media because it is exactly the kind of thing that people love. And then Big Brother, I mean big tech, which really just means Facebook and Twitter in this case, but also probably a little bit of Google. Um, as far as... Not that I could tell. Yeah, like it, it was complicated. But Facebook and Twitter specifically are being called out as big tech in this context. Um, they said, no, we're not going to let this story replicate. And then they began a scorched earth censorship campaign against the New York Post. <laughs> And that was sarcasm, if it wasn't clear. But uh, according to Martyr Maid and Daryl Cooper, this was a full-on censorship campaign against a major newspaper to protect a political candidate. So we have to ask, is that what really happened? Because at least to me, a full-on censorship campaign would mean that nothing from the New York Post would be allowed to be shared on Twitter or Facebook. But, you know, what happened here is... It's a little bit more mundane than that. Yep. So Facebook uh, limited distribution of the New York Post main story uh, while third-party fact-checkers reviewed the claims. Now, I know third-party fact-checkers get a lot of side-eye. Especially Facebooks. Um, especially Facebooks. But the reality of the situation is they're not Facebook employees. They're just people that get paid to... Do basically do what we do, yeah. but we do it for free. That's how you know we can be trusted. No, I don't no. Know. trust us if you want, based based on the strength of our podcasting, right. I guess. Either way, we know they get side eye. It's not we're not here to evaluate how they how well they do their job. Right. Just know that restriction was limited while those people did their job on the article. Now that is not the same as blocking the story entirely. It basically meant that their algorithm wouldn't recommend the story. When it did appear, it was ranked fairly low in somebody's feed, right? And this has the net effect of restricting traffic to the story. Uh, but even taking that measure, by 9 p.m. of the day the article was released, the story had been liked, shared, or commented on almost 600,000 times. So it's not like it wasn't getting pretty incredible distribution. To address the second part of the claim, that this was done in order to protect Biden, Facebook took the action of reducing distribution as part of its standard practice around the 2020 election. Yeah. Like, that's just what they were doing. They, they locked things down around the election. Um, they were really, really, really aggressive with moderation about it, um, with putting little notes under people's posts, telling them where they could get valid election information. I mean, we couldn't even get ads to go through their uh, ad approval process because the stuff that we talk about falls under social issues and because since we try to make this podcast timely we were talking about election related stuff like we couldn't even advertise our podcast um, but facebook's published guidelines which anyone can access say that in many countries including the united states if we have signals that a piece of content is false we temporarily reduce its distribution pending review by a third-party fact-checker. Yeah, this new aggressive policy was adopted and posted October 21 of 2019. 
Given the story around where this particular information came from, it seems fairly obvious that this would trigger those specific signals to allow third parties to attempt to validate or disprove that information. Now, Twitter did take a much harder line approach. They blocked users from posting pictures of the emails or links, um, but only to two specific New York Post stories that referred to the emails. This falls under their policy against sharing content obtained through hacking that contains private information. Which, while I'm not certain that this particular example is hacking specifically, um, taking somebody's files from their laptop without their knowledge certainly meets the spirit of the word, if not the specific definition, right. so I can understand why this policy was enacted. If this was indeed Hunter Biden's laptop, if these are indeed his emails, if they are being taken without his permission, that's pretty cut and dry. Um, I wouldn't want people sharing my personally identifiable information from my emails on Twitter. Yeah. So I'd feel hacked. Yeah. Now, this policy is in place specifically to help prevent things like doxing, which is when somebody's private identifiable information is published by a malicious actor. Um, usually it, 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 their documents. So it, things like their utility bills and their addresses mm -hmm. and all of that with their names on it, that's part of doxing, right? Or other things like revenge porn, although there's even other more rules for that too. Yes. It's just, it is a protection measure that is part of Twitter's modus operandi. Yeah. Notably, Twitter didn't remove posts that had been made prior to their enacting of that policy. If someone had shared the New York Post story and then they tried to click on the link to read the story, it would show them a warning, which they could click past to read that story. Twitter did require the New York Post Twitter account to delete the tweet about the story as well. Again, not quite a full-on censorship march against the New York Post as a target restriction of a specific story. Further, this ban on Twitter lasted from Wednesday to Friday of that same week. It was a little less than 48 hours. Okay, I do actually have to jump in here and say that, yes, the New York Post was actually banned on Twitter. It was part of what made this thing such a huge, complicated uproar. But Twitter basically said, you're locked out of your official account until you take down the tweets about this story. And then... Um, after a few days, they decided that the policy on the story needed to change. So they changed the policy on the story. But they also have a policy about following policies and new policies. So basically, because the New York Post had violated policy when it existed, they had to take down those tweets because they were in violation of Twitter's policy then. And then if they wanted to, they could retweet them. But there's kind of a standoff situation and the post was like, no, we're not going to take them down. And Twitter was like, fine, you're not going to be able to use your account. And it was really complicated. It did result in about two weeks of the New York Post not being able to use their official account. And then down the line, it was part of what spurred on the whole um, really awkward Senate hearings that happened in October of that year where... Um, where Facebook and Twitter and their various representatives and Google had to answer to Lindsey Graham yelling at them for hours and hours on end. It was a circus. Um, you could probably go back and watch them on YouTube. But all that to say, yes, the post did actually get banned. Was it for reporting on true information? We can't, nobody can say that for sure. We can't say that for sure because they're not willing to provide their proof of due diligence. So yeah. 
Now, the next claim does have some merit. Mm -hmm. The claim is that all of the tech companies now admit it was a mistake. So again, this is another rather broad assertion that groups an entire industry <laughs> in with right. the actions of, as far as I could find, Facebook and Twitter. I couldn't even find something that said Google had restricted their algorithm from recommending this story. In fact, this story is all that came up all the time when I was yeah. looking for information about it. Now it's 2021, things change, but still. Google's algorithm isn't quite as nimble, I would say, as Facebook and Twitter's. Yeah, from they what have I understand. a much, much bigger data lake to manage yeah. than Facebook or Twitter. Now, not to say Facebook and Twitter's isn't massive, but Google is, it's just a different it world. It works differently, very differently. Yeah. yeah. So it, it this claim, though, automatically makes it sound more ominous than maybe it is. I couldn't find any record of Facebook saying that they had made a mistake in their action, uh, but Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey did say what they did was a mistake. Well, sort of. Specifically, Dorsey said that simply blocking the URLs without context was wrong. The mistake was not necessarily in the editorializing of the content, but the way that they went about doing it. Their main error was communication. Dorsey said, our goal is to attempt to add context. This particular episode did lead Twitter to change their policies, so they will no longer remove hack material unless it's directly shared by hackers or those working with them. Instead of blocking links, the links will be labeled to provide context. <sighs> I know. As for the P thing. One, I can't believe we're addressing this. And two, I can't believe we're addressing this. <laughs> the claim Sorry. that, quote, stories about Trump being pissed on by Russian prostitutes and blackmailed by Putin were promoted as fact, and the only evidence was a document paid for by his opposition and disavowed by its source. <sighs> we have already addressed the provenance of the Steele dossier before, a couple of episodes ago. I really, really don't want to spend a lot of time on this except to make a couple of points. Right. Cooper gets the facts wrong on a couple points here, which are then used to punch up the emotional impact and the it's not fair feeling in all of this. And yes, I said that in a really condescending way because this whole section feels really condescending. Now, that isn't to say that Cooper did this intentionally, right? We're going to be clear about that. I think that what has happened is that something of a game of telephone, where the original already very strange story was twisted the more it was retold. We've now read, and I will, um, I will admit that I have not read nearly as much as my compatriot has, for life. way too much about this particular claim. Not all of it, so obviously this isn't a definitive accounting, thank the Lord, <laughs> but in general, the reports about the incident read something like this. In April 2016, Clinton campaign and DNC campaign lawyer Mark Elias retained the firm Fusion GPS in order to investigate Donald Trump and his ties to Russia. As we already covered, this is a pretty common, if morally gray, piece uh, practice called opposition research. Fusion, in turn, hired Christopher Steele, of the Steele dossier. 
he himself is a retired MI6 officer with Russian contacts. MI6 is a uh, intelligence organization in England. Steele's dossier eventually came up with 17 reports written over a six-month period. The report cited several anonymous sources. The general theme of the, of the reports together is a story about a multi-year multi tie between Trump and the Russian leadership with a conspiracy to influence the 2016 election. We're not adjudicating these claims specifically in this episode. We're just relaying what the dossier contained at this time. The tapes in question were in the first report from June of 2016, and it specifically states that Trump hired a number of prostitutes to perform golden showers, which is peeing on people, uh, in front of him, aimed at defiling the bed of the Ritz-Carlton's presidential suite because the Obamas had previously slept in that bed. There's a little bit more to the report, but that's the part in question. Very, very critically, nowhere does it state that Trump participated in these acts. It only alleged that he hired the women and he watched them perform the act. And again, that might be overly pedantic, but so far, the only people we've seen getting mad about Trump getting peed on are the people on the right saying the people on the left are saying that. It's a straw man argument. More importantly, <laughs> reading through all of this reporting, there is a critical difference between these stories and between the Hunter Biden New York Post story and then all of this reporting about this alleged uh, incident. None of the Trump story is reported as verified fact. Not that I could find. I couldn't find an article saying right. this definitely happened. It's all stuff like alleged and unverified and supposedly and according to and it like makes it very clear that this is all qualified information it's all like take it with a grain of salt because we don't know for sure and those words are happening to those words are being ignored i think by the people who are yeah reading this right um Unlike the New York Post article, which in the very first sentence presents an unverified theory as absolute fact. I will quote it because I'm not, I don't want to be like called out for being biased here and saying, well, you ignored something in the, in the article. Like, no, it explicitly says Hunter Biden introduced his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who was investigating the company, according to emails obtained by The Post. That's right. pretty black and white. Yeah, it's, I mean, the only, the only mitigating context in that is that last part of the sentence according to emails obtained by the post but it like it's not there's no alleged there's no supposedly there's no none of those other contextual words that you would look for in a report yeah. of something that is completely unverified yeah. they, i mean that mitigation it might be a fig leaf of like saying no no we said it you know we didn't say it was verified we said it was according to these emails not us but like the way that that sentence is worded right it makes it sound like those emails are just i mean it's fact you can't question it we have the emails yeah. to say it exactly 
Contrast this with Vox, the Washington Post, and CNN's coverage, which called the Trump tapes unverified allegations, and it's pretty apparent where that bias is. But if you needed another point of contrast, the Washington Post explicitly published an article urging caution when discussing the Trump-Russian prostitute allegation, specifically saying, this remains a claim that is still without basically any corroboration, and the idea that it's true because Trump complains about it is fanciful. Now, in fairness to Cooper's claims, and the feelings of those that he's speaking for here... A lot of these articles are side-by-side with, like, you know... Multiple allegations in the Steele dossier have been verified or stories about separate allegations in the dossier right. that have support. Um, so that does lend a, an air of, of credibility to it. It's, it's like what Robert and I were talking about a couple episodes ago, how you start with a statement of fact and then you follow it up with a unsupported or more emotional argument and the factuality of the first statement lends its power to the less verified claim. So that that does that is going on in these articles um, that is mm-hmm. at play and that's not exactly, I think, good. But again, we can't say that that's intentional. It might just be a result of the website's algorithms popping up articles like this. Right. Which is a fairly common practice. If you read this, you might also like something there, though. So that... Yeah. And it's human nature. Like, we once we find something that has verifiable, actual supported facts in it, we tend to be more trustworthy of the rest of the content. So if some parts of the Steele dossier were supported and factual and and verified, then it's more logical that people are going to trust the rest of it and perceive that the rest of it is factual and verified, even when it's not. Okay. Not making any claims about whether or not it's actually factual, actually verified. It's just, we get why people would think that that was being presented as factual, even when the article itself made it very clear that these are all unverified allegations. Exactly. So that being the case, and this difference being highlighted, is it is it fair to say that the New York Post was banned for reporting on true information? We're going to have to say no. The New York Post had two articles temporarily blocked on Twitter and restricted but not blocked on Facebook. The reasoning behind the restrictions were different for each, but neither company stopped the sharing of stories just because it was bad for Joe Biden's presidential bid. The New York Post had the opportunity to write their article and frame the information as what it actually was, unverified documents of unknown provenance, but instead chose to run with the story as if it were fact. The only people responsible for that particular chain of events are the New York Post. That said, if they want to provide proof (laughs) of the due diligence that they claim that they did, and that, as far as I can find, has not been provided to anybody, I would, for one, be thrilled to see it. I am not, however, holding my breath. I will say, the practice of developing compromat is a well-known uh, tactic in, in Russia in order to gain leverage over, um, well, anybody that they want to gain leverage. 
and over. And I'm not saying that it, this is what happened here. I'm saying that I can see a scenario where there are tapes that show something because that is pretty common. And it's another one of those things that like, because it has a plausible seed of truth in it, makes it more tempting to believe the more incredible parts of the claim. Right. And I highlight that right now because that's what the whole Twitter thread does. You have some plausible right. seeds of truth followed by an incredible claim. And because of the plausibility of parts of it, you just don't question the other parts of it. I just yeah. provided an, an, a different example of it from a different bias. That's all that was. Um, so I know that we're about to get into uh, the part of the episode where we tell people how they can talk yes. to us. And what I want to mm. prevent is people talking to us and telling us that we are uh, shaming anybody for their particular proclivities. Right. We are not. I mean, as far as I know, if those tapes exist, like the worst claim that anybody could make is you gross. Yeah. Like it's not particularly illegal. I don't think, I mean, I don't know the rules around prostitution in Russia and what people are and aren't allowed to do, but like, so some people peed on a bed. Yeah. It's gross, but it's not like political subterfuge. Yeah. So please understand we are not making the claims that if these tapes do exist and they are verifiable, that that has any sort of actual impact on a person's eligibility to be the president of the United yeah. States. Not trying to yuck anybody's um, yum out here. That was an interesting choice of terms. Come on. Oh, that's common. I learned it from the, I, no, I, I know it from the McElroy. But usually it's food. Usually it's food related. Is it really? I've only literally yeah. ever heard it in the context of sexual preference. Oh, yeah. interesting. Well, I was going to go with kink shame, but I suppose well, either yeah. one is... In the hierarchy is, of words um, in my head, you know, like peeing is less than pissed, which is why I hate researching this. Like pissed is such a, a word that I hate. It makes me cringe. Um, and and yuck your yum is is less than kink shame in my head. So I went for the, the more uh, <laughs> mentally friendly version of it, I guess. Right. Which, yeah, it... The things that these are the gymnastics that we do to bring you a podcast that is both informative and entertaining. Right. folks. And if you think it is both of those things or neither of those things, you can let us know. The best way to let us know is really on our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. Uh, there you can find all of the show notes, all of the write ups that we've done uh, about for each show. Most of it is a it reads almost like a transcript of the podcast because there's a lot of information and we need to keep it straight when we're giving it to you guys. So we script this. Um, we're not going to pretend otherwise. Um, you can also yeah. find links to our social uh, profiles on Facebook, on Instagram. I think Twitter, really not a lot going on on Twitter. Not going to lie. We just don't have time or energy. No. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can send us a message there. You can contact us. Super easy form to fill out if you've got questions, if you've got topic ideas, if you've got um you know, somebody that you think we should talk to, anything like that. If you want to come on the show, you can pitch us. Uh, that's the way, that's the place to do it. Firesidebreakdowns.com. Yeah. If you think we are particularly awesome and you're like, gosh, I wish there was something I could do to support these people. There's also a link to our Patreon there. 
as well. Oh, yeah. And that uh, does bring me to our, our first uh, piece of, of good news out of a couple. Um, we have our first patron. Yay! So we, uh, it's uh, not going to give full names out here, but uh, Catherine in. Thank you so much for your uh, patronage. We really appreciate it. Uh, we will be working on delivering the uh, the stuff that you get with your with your uh, patronage. All that stuff. We'll get that to you soon. Um, <laughs> working hard on that. There's just so much going on. So thank yes. you. Yes. Be prepared for the awesomest playlist ever. Or the most chaotic. One of the two. If you like a lot of different eclectic tastes, it's going to be the awesomest. That is for sure. All right, Robin. Yes. Give us the good news to take us out for the week. Sweet. All right. This week, Walmart announced that it is expanding a program called Live Better You, or LBU for short, that pays for college tuition and books for store associates. Associates can earn college degrees in relevant fields through a variety of college programs online, and Walmart will cover the entirety of their tuition and their books. Since Walmart is the largest private employer in the United States, this could have a very significant impact on the number of Americans who are able to achieve a college education and increase the likelihood of success and advancement inside and outside of that organization. Now, I know that Walmart has often been held up as an example of how not to treat your employees. And admittedly, there are still many ways that they can improve in that area. But I personally believe that once we demand that organizations like Walmart make change, we have to make space for them to do that and we have to recognize it when they do. So, good on you, Walmart. And we hope that this bears proof that treating employees well and helping them create better lives for themselves is a better and more sustainable way of doing business. That would be awesome. And that is a great program. And you are right. Whenever anybody does something that is worthy of praising, regardless of their past conduct, if we want to encourage good behavior, we have to recognize the stuff that is praiseworthy. Um, yeah, because otherwise, what's the point in changing? Exactly. So yeah, pretty cool. I might consider yeah. uh, beginning to consider thinking about shopping there again. <laughs> I haven't in years. <laughs> all right. Uh, we've run way too long on this. We took all the time that we were supposed to run over last week and put it on this week. Uh, so, oh, geez. I just looked at yeah. our time. Holy yeah, baloney. Yeah, we've been going. So... Uh, Everybody, thank you so much for sticking in there with us. We have one more uh, episode that is going to address this particular Twitter thread um, talking about the election uh, in 2020 and some of the questions that people have there. So that will be coming up to you in one week. We look forward to seeing you then. Until that time, everybody, take care of each other.